0: Okay, so tonight's talk has the title, A Description of Nibbana as Found in the Suttas. It's not really the talk I want to give. I'd prefer to give a description of Nibbana from personal experience. But yeah, I'm still working on that talk. So you're going to have to get what the Buddha had to say. I mean, actually, he knew more than I'll ever know. So... um. One of the locations in the suttas where you find a number of descriptions of Nibbana is the Udana. The Udana is another one of those collections in the Kudaka Nikaya, the miscellaneous collection. And it's 80 different suttas divided into eight books. And book eight actually has quite a lot about Nibbana. There are a number of suttas that talk about Nibbana there. And so I want to share with you a few of those. Thus have I heard. At one time, the Blessed One was staying at Sabati in Jetis Grove on a Dependicus part. Now, on that occasion, the Blessed One was instructing, rousing, inspiring, and gladdening the bhikkhus with the Dhamma talk connected with Nibbana. And those bhikkhus, being receptive and attentive and concentrating the whole mind, were intent on listening to Dhamma. And then on realizing its significance— The blessed one uttered on that occasion, this inspired utterance. So Udana means inspired utterance and each of these has a prose section and then some verses. And sometimes the verses don't relate at all to the prose, but the ones I'm going to use, it definitely matches very well. There is bhikkhus that base where there is no earth, no water, no fire, no air, no base consisting of the infinity of space. No base consisting of the infinity of consciousness. No base consisting of nothingness. No base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception. Neither this world, nor another world, nor both. Neither sun nor moon. Here, because I say there is no coming, no going, no staying, No decreasing, no increasing, not fixed, not movable. It has no support. Just this is the end of dukkha. Okay, so there is that base. The word base here is ayatana. This is the word that we usually translate as the senses. And refers, as I said earlier, not only to the sense organ, but to the sense object, right? It's both. So there is that sensing or maybe that experience where there is no earth, water, fire, or air. So no materiality is being sensed. No sensing of any of the immaterial states, right? So no materiality, no immateriality, no sensing of these. Neither this world, nor another world, nor both, neither sun nor moon. No coming, no going, no staying, no decreasing, no increasing, not fixed, not movable. It has no support. So this is non-duality, right? We don't have materiality. We don't have immateriality. We don't have increasing. We don't have decreasing. We don't have sun or moon. We don't have, yeah, any dualities, no opposites. Just this is the end of dukkha. Okay, so it's kind of easy to understand what's being said, but uh, a little more difficult to figure out what's going on there. This is uh, mentioned. So 8.2... Exactly the same opening, the Buddha's giving a Dharma talk on Nibbana. And then he says, it's hard to see the unaffected, for the truth isn't easily seen. Craving is pierced in one who knows, for one who sees, there is nothing. Or perhaps better, there is no thing. A different translation, the uninclined is hard to see. The truth is not easy to see. Craving is penetrated by one who knows. For one who sees, there's nothing. So, the practice is often referred to as knowing and seeing things as they are. Although I want to translate it, knowing and seeing what's actually happening. And so, craving is penetrated by one who knows... All right. Once you know, ain't nothing really worth craving, ain't nothing you can actually hang on to, it's all sandcastles, then the craving can be penetrated. And for one who sees, there is no thing, no thing, no materiality, no immateriality, no sun, no moon, no increasing, no decreasing, etc. No duality. Yeah, all this is kind of cryptic. Sorry about that. Udana 8.3. This is the most famous description of Nibbana. If you find a teacher that's fairly familiar with the suttas and you ask them, what do the suttas say about Nibbana, they'll probably tell you this particular sutta, or at least the Udana from it. So, that, Because the introduction is exactly like the previous two. There is because a not born, a not brought to being, a not made, a not conditioned. If because there were no not born, not brought to being, not made, not conditioned, no escape would be cerned from what is born, brought to being, made, conditioned. But since there is a not born, a not brought to being, a not made, a not conditioned, Therefore, an escape is discerned from what is born, brought to being, made, conditioned. Which all makes, well, the logic is good, right? But what exactly is being talked about here? Well, the first thing is to get the translation correct. Sometimes you see it, uh, something like there is... The unborn, the unbecome, the unmade, the unconditioned. That's eight words. Five of them are incorrect. In Pali, there are no articles, no a, n, or the. Right. So this is just the translator trying to make it flow a little nicer. But what the Buddha said was. There is not born, not brought to being, not made. Unconditioned is a pathetic translation of asankata, asankarad. So it's the past participle of Sankara in the negative. Remember, Sankara is making together. It's all the things of creation are Sankaras. So not not created things, not concocted, not fabricated, that would be better translation. And it's not the unconcocted or the unfabricated. The the is a mistake. The problem with the the is, especially when they hear the unconditioned, People interpret that as, "Oh, there's a place called the unconditioned, and when I get enlightened and die, I'll go live in the unconditioned. It's heaven for arhats." Or, yeah, I know that sounds silly, but I have actually heard teachers teach in that way. It's definitely not what the sutta says. It would literally be, "There is without birth, without becoming, without made." without fabricated okay now in poly they tend to use past participles like we use gerunds in english past participles are the ones that end in ed conditioned fabricated etc and gerunds are the ones that end in ing so there is not birthing, not becoming, not making, not fabricating or concocting. And I think this is captures it better. It's not literally correct, but I think this is what the Buddha is talking about. And who is the fabricator, the concoctor? Now that's you. You're the one fabricating and concocting the world. You're the one fabricating and concocting form and not form, materiality and not materiality, sun and moon, increasing, decreasing, coming and going, or staying, right? We're the one chopping up the holistic unfolding, which is a verb, into static or somewhat static nouns, things, sun, moon, etc. So it appears what the Buddha is saying is that Nibbana is a way of perceiving reality different from the way we usually perceive it, and in particular, a way of perceiving reality that is, well, not so dualistic. It's a way of perceiving reality without chopping it up into all the bits and pieces and things that we normally interact with. Instead of seeing a bunch of separate disconnected things, one way to begin to approach this is to start seeing streams of dependently arising processes interacting, okay? It would really, that's got a little too many nouns in it, streamings of arising processings interacting, okay? But even then, there's a tendency to want to fixate on the streams and the processes. It's like the streams of dependently arising processes interacting is to get you out of the normal into something a little more verb-centered and a little more interconnected. But to get to what the Buddha's talking about there, you've got to get even further away from any concept of things. You've got to stop thingifying the world and perceive the world Well, as just the unfolding, as a holistic unfolding. If you do that, uh, obviously there's nothing to crave or cling to, right? There's nobody there to do the craving and clinging, and there's nothing to crave or cling to. But me telling you, oh, that's what you should do, that's not really helpful. You need to, well, have a practice to get there, right? some way of approaching this other than just intellectually. Guess what? In the Udana, there's a sutta. It's in the first book. It's the 10th one. So Udana 1.10 called the Bahiya Sutta. Thus have I heard. Once the Blessed One was staying near Savati in Jeta's Grove on the Dependicus Park. At that time, Bahia of the Bark Cloth was living by the seashore at Supa Paraca. He was respected, revered, honored, venerated, and given homage, and was one who obtained the requisites of robes, alms food, lodging, and medicines. Okay, so he's a holy man, and he's wearing bark cloth clothing. Why is he wearing bark cloth clothing living at the seashore at Supaparaka, which is over near Mumbai, Bombay, as it was used to be called? It's quite a long ways from uh, Savati, by the way. So why is he wearing bark cloth clothing? Well, the commentaries, bless their little hearts, tell us that he was a shipwrecked sailor and he was washed ashore naked, and to cover his nakedness, he grabbed some bark and held it in front of him, and people thought, oh, this is a holy man. They started giving him food, and so he got this gig of wearing bark cloth, so people would give him food, and lodgings, and so forth. No, that was composed in Sri Lanka, like you know, centuries after the Buddha's death, in a completely different culture. Actually, he was a follower of the Brihad Upanishad. The Upanishads are spiritual literature that was composed, some of it prior to the Buddha, some of it contemporaneous with the Buddha, and some of it later. The Brihad Upanishad is one of the earliest of the Upanishads, and it makes a big deal about trees. So, Bahia is wearing bark cloth clothing because he's a devotee of the Brihad Aranikar Upanishad, which in Sri Lanka, when they were doing the commentaries, yeah, they didn't know about that. So, yeah, you got to watch out for the commentaries. Sometimes it's some good stuff. Sometimes, yeah, oh well. Anyhow. Now while he was in seclusion this reflection arose in the mind of Bahia of the Barkcloth am i one of those in the world who are arahants or have entered the path to arahantship and then a deva who was a former blood relation of Bahia of the Barkcloth understood that reflection in his mind being compassionate and wishing to benefit him he approached Bahia and said you Bahia are neither an arahant nor have you entered the path to arahantship. You do not follow a practice whereby you could become an Arhat, or enter the path to arhatship Then in the world, including the devas who are arahants or have entered the path to arhatship there is Bahia in a far country, a town called Savati. There the Blessed One now lives who is an Arhat, fully enlightened, That Blessed One, Bahia, is indeed an Arhant, and he teaches Dhamma for the realization of Arhantship. Then Bahia of the Barkcloth, profoundly stirred by the words of that Deva, then and there departed from Supaparaka. Stopping for only one night everywhere along the way, he went to Savati, where the Blessed One was staying in Jetis Grove on a Dependicus Park. Now, sometimes you see this sentence mistranslated, that he went there in a day and a night. Uh, that's just a mistranslation. You don't need any magic here, right? He was determined. He left Super Baraka and he went as far as he could. He spent the night. He got up the next day, and he went as far as he could. He spent the night, and he didn't spend two nights in the same place. He just kept going as basically as fast as he could, all the way to Jatus Grove on a Tependicus Park. At that time, a number of bhikkhus were walking up and down in the open air. Then Bahia of the bark cloth approached those bhikkhus and said, Where, Reverend Sirs, is the Blessed One now living, the Arhat, the fully awakened one. We wish to see that Blessed One who is an Arhat, a fully awakened one. The Blessed One, Bahia, has gone for alms food among the houses. He's gone into town to get something to eat. Then Bahia hurriedly left the Jeta woods. Entering Savati, he saw the Blessed One walking for alms food, pleasing, lovely to see, with calm senses and tranquil mind, attained to perfect poise and calm, controlled, a perfected one, watchful with restrained senses. So when Bahia sees the Buddha, he knows who he is. Of course, it could be that there was a whole bunch of monks following along behind the Buddha. That might have been a hint as well. On seeing the Blessed One, he approached, fell down with his head at the Blessed One's feet, and said, Teach me Dhamma, O Blessed One, teach me Dhamma, so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. Upon being spoken to thus, the Blessed One said to Bahia of the cloth, It is an unsuitable time, Bahia. We have entered among the houses for alms food. So, if there was a spiritual teacher who got his food to eat each day by going on alms round, it was considered improper to interrupt his alms round and ask for teachings. Because if he stopped and gave you teachings, by the time he'd given you his talk and answered your questions, there might not be any food left. So, yeah, you didn't interrupt a teacher while he was on alms round. A second time, Bah, have the, said to the Lord, It is difficult to know for certain, reverend sir, how long the blessed one will live or how long I will live. Teach me Dhamma, O blessed one, teach me Dhamma, so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. A second time, the Blessed One said to Bahia, It is an unsuitable time, Bahia. We have entered among the houses for alms food. A third time, Bahia said to the Blessed One, It is difficult to know for certain, reverend sir, how long the Blessed One will live or how long I will live. Teach me Dhamma, O Blessed One, teach me Dhamma so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. Now, sometimes, if you ask the Buddha real nice three times, he might grant your request. Herein, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In seeing, let there be merely seeing. In hearing, merely hearing. In sensing, merely sensing. In cognizing, merely cognizing. In this way, you should train yourself, Bahia. When bahia for you and seeing is merely seeing, hearing merely hearing, sensing merely sensing, cognizing merely cognizing, then bahia you will not be with that. When you are not with that, then bahia you will not be in that. When bahia you're not in that, then bahia you will neither be here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of dukkha now through this brief dhamma teaching of the blessed one the mind of bahia of the cloth was immediately freed from the asavas the taints the intoxicants without grasping then the blessed one having instructed bahia with this brief instruction went away so how come bahia became fully awakened with this very brief instruction. Well, Bahiya of the bark cloth was wearing bark cloth, And he comes running up to the Buddha and throws himself at the feet of the Buddha and asks for teachings. He's clearly a holy man. He's clearly a holy man who's very devoted to the Brihad Aranyakar Upanishad. And so the buddha knows his spiritual background. And he knows in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad there's a teaching that goes somewhat like in seeing there is an unseen seer in hearing there's an unheard hearer in sensing an uncensor. sensor in cognizing an uncognized cognizer this is your atman your soul yourself and so he knows Bahiya has been looking at his seeing, trying to see the unseen seer, and listening to his hearing, trying to hear the unheard hearer, right? And The Buddha goes, no, man, in seeing it's just seeing, in hearing it's just hearing. Can you Can you get your mind into that state if you can? There's no you in that, there's no you in this, there's no you in between. Just this is the end of dukkha this was enough for Bahia to wake up. Now, I should point out that the translation usually found goes something like, in the scene will be merely what is seen, or in the scene will be merely the scene," in the heard merely the heard. And again, we've got articles and past participles. No articles, so literally what it says in seen, will be only seen; in heard, only heard. But we don't speak like that in English. We use gerunds. So I translate it as: In seeing, will be merely seeing; in hearing, merely hearing; in sensing, merely sensing; in cognizing, merely cognizing. This this is what you want to try and do: is get yourself into a state where you can look at the world, and instead of seeing objects, just see seeing. You can listen, and instead of hearing a bird sing or an airplane fly over, you're just hearing hearing. Right? Yeah, this is tricky. Helps to have a concentrated mind to get there, because there's a real strong tendency to, well, latch on to what you're seeing. What? Well, you're trying to do is get your mind into a state prior to conceptualization, right? You're not conceptualizing that shape sort of square with a triangle on top as a house. It's just, it's not even just colored shapes. That's one step along the way. But to step back even further and you're seeing just the visual field. Okay, and when you're hearing, you're just hearing the auditory feel. I find this works well for walking, particularly when going for a walk. Now, you want to do this when going for a walk where you don't have to navigate your way back. You know how to get back, right? And where you don't have to really look out for rocks or tree roots or something in the path. Because, yeah, look for that stuff so you don't fall on your face if you're walking along a country road or something like that this is really good and you're walking along and you put your attention more in your peripheral vision than what's right in front of you and you try to see the visual field as just the visual field as opposed to the objects in the visual field and you try and hear just the auditory field yeah you'll probably at best fall in and out of this But I find when I get it going, get it going really well, I'm no longer walking. The world is coming past me. There's no sense of movement anymore. My feet are going up and down. The road is going underneath my feet. I sense that. But the walking is, is not being conceptualized. There's just the sensing of the pressure on one foot and the other, and then it's just sensing, not even one foot or anything. And the visual field is just the visual field. This is stepping back. Sometimes when I go for a walk, I try and imagine what it would be like if I wasn't present, right? So I'm walking down this road and there's birds and flowers and trees and the house house. But what would it be like if I wasn't present? Can I actually imagine removing myself from the exact same situation that I'm experiencing? When I do, there's no me in that, no me in this, no me in between. No craving, no clinging, no setup for dukkha. Right? This is the practice that the Buddha gave to Bahia. And Bahia was obviously very good at that. He'd been doing this practice for quite a while. And when he makes that just slight cognitive shift from looking for his self to seeing, ain't no self there, full awakening. Not long after the Blessed One's departure, a cow with young calf attacked Bahia of the bar cloth and killed him. This was a hazard at the time of the Buddha. They didn't fence the cows in. I mean in India they still don't fence the cows in. The cows just wander wherever. And you're probably aware that you don't want to walk between a cow and her calf. And so what I'm assuming is, you know, Bahia is looking at the world, seeing, seeing. Maybe he sees a cow over there and he sees a calf over there and another cow over here. And he figures this calf goes with that cow, not this cow. And he walks between them, but it goes with this cow, and he's dead. Right? I mean, it's sort of like today, you know. He went to his meditation group, and on the way home, some drunk driver t-boned him and killed him. But they didn't have drunk drivers then. They had cow with calf. Bahia is not the only person that this happened to. There was the former king of Taxila. Taxila is in western India, west of where the Buddha grew up, and it was, well, I don't know, the Oxford or Cambridge of India at that time. It was the university, and the king of Taxila heard about the Buddha and renounced his kingship and went to seek out the Buddha to practice the spiritual life. And he traveled all the way to Rajagaha and one night he needed a place to stay and he saw a potter and he asked the potter could he stay in the potter's shed. And the potter said yes, but there's another recluse in there, don't disturb him. So the former king goes in and has some conversation with that recluse and that other recluse gives him a Dhamma talk because the other recluse was the Buddha and the form of king of taxila gets to the third stage of awakening bahia got all the way to four but the king gets to three and he apologizes to the buddha for not you know showing enough deference and so forth and then asks to become a monk and the king says do you have your robe i mean the buddha says to the king do you have your robe and bowl and the king says no and the buddha says go obtain a robe and bowl. Because see, as a monk, he couldn't go out and ask somebody to give him a robe or a bowl. You know, he had to go buy it or beg it or whatever. And once he had those, then he could be ordained. But while he was out searching for a robe and bowl, he was killed by a cow with calf. There was Supabuddha the leper. Supabuddha was out one day, and he saw a large gathering of people, and he thought it might be a free distribution of food. So he went along to see what was going on, but it was it was just some guy giving a talk. But Super Buddha sat down in the back, and it was the Buddha, and he got to the first stage of awakening, stream entry. But he too was later killed by a cow with calf. The commentaries tell us about the executioner of King Pasanadi, king of Kosala. Kosala's capital was Savati, where this particular sutta takes place. And of course, the king always has an executioner. Well, anyhow, the king's executioner was killed by a cow with calf. The commentaries also tell us it was the same cow. They say that in a previous life, these four guys had hired a prostitute. And after they had had their way with her, instead of paying her, they killed her. And now she's come back as this cow in this life. And she's traveling all over India, seeking them out and killing them. Yeah, that's the official story. You got to watch out for those commentaries. I think it was just a hazard at the time, like drunk drivers are a hazard today. When the Blessed One, having walked for alms, food, and Savati, was returning from the alms round with a number of bhikkhus. On departing from the town, he saw that Bahia Bahia of the bark cloth had died. Seeing this, he said to the bhikkhus, Bhikkhus, take Bahia's body, put it on a litter, Carry it away and burn it and make a stupa for it. Your companion in the holy life has died. Very well, reverend sirs. Those bhikkhus did what the Buddha had suggested. And then they went to see the Buddha and said they had done it. And then they asked, what is his destiny? What is his future birth? Now, this is something that happens over and over again to the Buddha. Somebody's died, and they come to the Buddha to find out what their future deceased future birth is. Bhikkhus, Bahi of the bark cloth was a wise man. He practiced according to the Dhamma and did not trouble me by disputing about Dhamma. Bhikkhus, Bahi of the bark cloth has attained final nibbana. He's become fully awakened. Then on realizing its significance, the Blessed One uttered on that occasion this inspired utterance. Where neither water, nor yet earth, nor fire, nor air gain a foothold, there gleam no stars, no sun sheds light, there shines no moon, yet there no darkness reigns. When a sage, a Brahman, has come to know this for themselves for, through their own wisdom, Then they are freed from form and formless, freed from pleasure and from pain. Now, this sounds very much like what we found in Udana 1. Right? No water, earth, fire, or air. But it's not the base, but it's where they gain no foothold. Right? So, an enlightened one, it doesn't mean they can't perceive materiality but it doesn't gain a foothold. There gleam no stars, no sun sheds light, there shines no moon, yet there no darkness reigns. So no light, no dark. Again, beyond duality. When one knows this for oneself, they're freed from form and formless and from pleasure and pain. In other words, the end of Dukkha. So, The Bahia practice is yet another insight practice you're getting on this retreat. Yep, we're not trying to get you to do all these practices. We're hoping that you find one of them that you can relate to and go do that practice on a regular basis. Or maybe you find a couple that you like and you rotate amongst them. The best practice to do for your insight practice is the one you want to do. It's, It's not how you investigate reality. It's that you investigate reality. And so we've given you a bunch of hows so that you can go investigate reality. I want to share another sutta with you. This one is in the Long Discourses, Dignikaya number 11, the Kevata Sutta. Kevata was a layman he lived in Nalanda. Nalanda was in later times the site of a Buddhist university. Uh, it was destroyed in, I think the 11th century, sometime like that, by the Muslim invasion. But you can go see the ruins of M- Nalanda today. And yeah, if you're in the area, definitely go check it out. There's the Stupa to Sariputta. Sariputta the Buddha's chief disciple was a native of Nalanda. And he was born there and he also died there. And so his stupa is there. And you can see, well, it's it's like Oxford or Cambridge. There's a bunch of colleges, right? a bunch of schools. And there were uh, Theravadan schools right next to Mahayana schools, next to savastivadan schools, It must have been quite an amazing place, though by the time it was destroyed, yeah, it had fallen into seeking wealth and political power. But for quite some time, it was the center of Buddhism in the world. And at the time of the Buddha, well, thus have I heard, once the Buddha was living near Nalanda with a large company of monks At that time, Kevata comes to the Buddha, salutes, sits down at one side, and says, Venerable Sir, this Nalanda is a rich and prosperous place. You should send some monks into town and have them do miracles. This will impress the people, and they will provide food, clothing, shelter, and medicine if needed. And the Buddha says, Kevita, this is not how we teach Dhamma. There are three types of miracles. The first of these miracles is being one, becoming many, being many, becoming one, appearing and disappearing, walking on water, diving to the earth, passing through walls and ramparts unimpeded, flying cross-legged through the sky as though you were a bird, wielding mastery over the body as far as the Brahma realms. But everybody knows if you have a Gandharan charm, it's very easy to do that. So if I send monks into town and they start flying through the air or walking on water, wouldn't an unbeliever say, ah, they just got a Gandharan charm? Oh, yes, I guess so, venerable sir. The second type of miracle is knowing the minds of others. But everyone knows that if you have a Matika charm, then it's very easy to know the minds of others. So if I send monks into town and they start reading people's minds, wouldn't an unbeliever say, ah, they just got a Matika charm? Yes, I guess so, venerable sir. No, there's only one miracle that really counts, and that's the miracle of instruction. And actually, the miracle of instruction is really amazing. I'm sitting here in Oakland, California. I'm exhaling and flapping some loose something or another in my throat. It makes compressed airwaves which go out and hit the microphone on my computer, which get digitized, sent over the internet from places literally all over the world, right? And then it comes out of your computer after it's been undigitized and making compressed airwaves which strike your ear and you learn something. It is kind of amazing, right? The miracle of instruction. So the Buddha goes on, and what is the miracle of instruction? A Tathagata arises in this world who teaches the Dhamma, which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Someone hears the Dhamma, gains faith, goes forth, keeps the precepts, guards the senses, is mindful of all that they do, is content with little abandons the hindrances, practices the jhanas, and then with a mind concentrated, etc., examines mind and body to gain insight into the nature of reality, overcomes the asavas, and puts an end to dukkha. And then the suttas changes very drastically, but it's still given to kevata. I'm guessing that it was two discourses that were jammed together. And the first discourse is basically the Buddha saying, nah, those kind of miracles like walking on water are unimportant. What's important is the miracle of instruction. And he teaches the gradual training. And then this second discourse, well, it's, it's a nice story. And it's given to Kevita. So there were two stories given to Kevita, and they got coupled together to make one long discourse. We find that periodically in the long discourses, and the Middle Age discourses, multiple suttas being jammed together. Kevita, Once in this Sangha, there was a monk who wanted to know where the four elements, earth, water, fire, and air, cease without remainder. And so that monk attained to such a great degree of concentration, that he was able to ascend to the lowest of the heavens. And he went up to those devas there, and he said to them, Excuse me, good sirs, can you please tell me where the four elements cease without remainder? And those devas said, We don't know. You should ask the four great kings in the next heaven up. So that monk increased his concentration and went up to the realm of the four great kings. And he went up to the kings and he said, excuse me, good sirs, can you please tell me where the four elements cease without remainder? And they said, we don't know. You should ask the devas in the next realm up. So that monk, you get the picture? (laughs) Up and up he goes through the heavens. Everywhere, we don't know, ask the guys upstairs. Until he gets to the retinue of Brahma. And he goes up to the devas of the retinue of Brahma And he asks them where the four elements cease without remainder. And they tell him, we don't know, but you should ask Brahma. Brahma knows everything. Where can I find Brahma? Oh, no one knows where to find Brahma. Well, how am I going to ask him? If you're patient, he will arrive. Well, how will I know when he arrives? Oh, don't worry. You'll know. There'll be a bright light and a sound like rolling thunder and a sweet, sweet smell of incense, and he will announce himself. So that monk went, sat over in a corner, continued his meditation, and it wasn't long before there was a bright light, and a sound like rolling thunder, and a sweet, sweet smell of incense, and Brahma arrived, and he said, I am Brahma, I am great Brahma, creator of the world, I know everything, I see everything. And so that monk went up to him and said, "'Excuse me, sir, can you please tell me "'where the four elements cease without remainder?' "'And Brahma replied, "'I am Brahma. I am great Brahma. "'I created the world. I know everything. I see everything.' "'I didn't ask you who you were. You already told me that. "'What I asked you was, "'where do the four elements cease without remainder, please?' I am Brahma. I am great Brahma, creator of the world. I know everything. I see everything. Look, would you just stop repeating yourself and tell me where the four elements cease without remainder? You say you see everything. Brahma took that monk by the shoulder, led him aside. He said, these guys think I know everything. I don't know where the four elements cease without remainder. But by the looks of you, you're a Buddhist monk. You should go ask the Buddha that then as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm or draw it back, that monk disappeared from the highest of the heavens and reappeared on earth and came to see the Buddha. Saluted the Buddha, sat down at one side and said, Venerable, sir, where do the four elements cease without remainder? The Buddha said... You've been as far as the Brahma realms, looking for an answer to this question. You should have come to me in the first place, but you've asked your question incorrectly. You should be asking, "Where do the four elements no footing find? Where do earth, water, and fair air? Where do earth, water, fire, and air no footing find? Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul?" where our name and form totally come to an end. And the answer is where consciousness is signless, limitless, and all-illuminating. That's where earth, wire, fodder, fire and air, no footing, find. There, both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, their name and form totally come to an end. With the cessation of consciousness, this all comes to an end. Okay. So again, we have the no footing for the four elements, no duality in any sort, where consciousness is signless, limitless, and all-illuminating. Signless. Now, the commentaries... And some of the footnotes you'll find, yeah, they're all wandering around. But I think what is being said is where you're not getting caught in the signs and conceptualizing what you're experiencing. Consciousness that is signless. In other words, it's just seeing, seeing. Or even not even seeing, seeing, it's just seeing. It's just hearing, it's just sensing, it's just cognizing. It's limitless because <laughs> if there was a limit, that would be a sign, that would be a thing. So there has to be no limit. And it's all illuminating. It's, it's such that you realize this is the way the whole universe is. This is the nature of the unfolding. There, no footing for the four elements, so materiality doesn't find a footing. Long and short, small and great, fair and foul, beautiful and ugly, none of these apply. The dualities are gone. Their name and form, Nama Rupa, all of these totally come to an end. And then this last sentence, with the cessation of consciousness, all of this comes to an end. That was weird. I mean, you know, the first time I started studying this, these verses, it was like, does this mean you go unconscious? That doesn't sound very useful. Is this equating Naroda, the so-called ninth jhana, with Nibbana? I don't think so. There's no other evidence of that. What's going on here? I don't know. So I had to put this in the I don't know bucket. I hope all of you got a large I don't know bucket because there's a whole bunch we don't know about everything, okay? And it's much better to put something in the I don't know bucket rather than to pretend that you know when you really don't know. If you don't know, it's good to know I don't know. That's the I don't know bucket. So I eventually had to stick this in the I don't know bucket for quite a while. But then I was taking a course from John Peacock. And John Peacock happened to mention that the word vijnana that we translate as consciousness is vijnana. Jnana is knowledge. And v, well, v can mean a lot of different things. But I think in this case it means divided. So with the cessation of divided knowing, all this comes to an end with the cessation of chopping up the holistic universe into a bunch of bits and pieces, all this comes to an end. So here's yet another way that consciousness, vijnana, is used. Here it's being used literally as what the word means. So it's, it's the ability to experience the world beyond concepts, to experience The visual field as just the visual field and nothing else. And the same for the auditory and sensory and mental experiences as just that. This may all still seem to be a bit obscure, hard to get your head around. Yeah, took me a long time to get any sense out of this. But I want to read you something from Kitaro Nishida. He was a Japanese philosopher who flourished between the two world wars. And this is from his The Nothingness Beyond God. Pure experience is the beginning of Zen. It is awareness stripped of all thought, all conceptualization, all categorization, and all distinctions between subject as having an experience and as experience as having been had by a subject. It is prior to all judgment. Pure experience is without all distinctions. It is pure no-thingness, pure no-this-or-that. It is empty of any and all distinctions. It is absolutely no thing at all. Yet its emptiness and nothingness is a -a chock-a-block fullness, for it is all experience to come. It is rose, child, river, anger, death, pain, rocks, and cicada sounds. We carve these discrete events and entities out of a richer, non-distinct manifold of pure experience. Uh, This might be worth reading again. Pure experience is the beginning of Zen. It is awareness stripped of all thought, all conceptualization, all categorization, and all distinctions between subject as having an experience and as experience as having been had by a subject. It is prior to all judgment. Pure experience is without all distinction. It is pure no-thingness, pure no-this-or-that. It is empty of any and all distinctions. It is absolutely no thing at all. Yet its emptiness and nothingness is a -a chock-a-block fullness, for it is all experience to come. It is rose, child, river, anger, death, pain, rocks, and cicada sounds. We carve these discrete events and entities out of a richer yet non-distinct manifold of pure experience. So I'm reading that off of my website, and guess what I'll do? I'll stick the link in the chat. There's a few other things on that page, including references to Dignikaya number 11, Udana 1.10, and Udana 8.1.2.3. So, any questions?